If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Parables make for great teaching tools. Parables, of course, are stories that are told, which are meant to teach a lesson or two. They often drive points home far more effectively than simply stating the lesson in so many words. That's, for example, why preachers tend to use illustrations. People remember and understand the message better through these stories. In fact, sometimes even people who don't want to learn the lesson end up getting it because the story has such an impact. Think back, for example, to Nathan, the prophet's confrontation with King David, the famous parable he told in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had just committed this terrible sin. He had uh, committed adultery with a neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, and then uh, orchestrated the death of her husband to cover his tracks. He seems to have succeeded pretty well in covering things up. He's gotten away with it. He's managed somehow to just push it to the back of his mind. He's not even thinking about it. And along comes Nathan the prophet, and he tells David this story. He tells him about a certain poor man who had one precious little lamb that he just loved. And there was a rich man who had all these oodles of flocks. And a traveler comes to visit the rich man. And this guy is too stingy to take one of his own sheep from that huge flock. And instead he steals this poor man's little tiny lamb and kills the lamb to to feed the traveler. And David, when he hears this story, oh, he is just outraged at the injustice. How dare this poor, this rich man who has so much take away from the poor man. And his blood is boiling and he's saying, oh, that man should die. At that point, Nathan hits him with a punchline. You are that man. Now, you're the one you had so much that God gave you and then you took away from Uriah, his wife. The story had such an impact. It put what he had done into perspective for David. The parables just make for really good teaching tools, especially ones that can get even people who don't want to learn the lesson to learn it. Now, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, our reading this morning, is is a parable exactly like that. And what's particularly noteworthy about this parable is we have Psalm 2, which can be used as an excellent commentary on the parable. And furthermore, there is in this parable a second very important lesson that is often overlooked. So this morning, let's take a look at the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Jesus told this parable during his last week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, during his last face-to-face encounter with the chief priests and the elders, the Pharisees, who at this point are in open hostility against Jesus. They are seeking to kill him. When the gloves are off, Jesus is being very direct about where the Pharisees are really coming from. 
The parable starts at verse 33. You've got a landowner, and the landowner creates a vineyard, and he leases it out to vine dressers. We notice that's the landowner who makes the vineyard. It's a nice place. It's got everything that's needed. We're told he leases it out to vine dressers. So we don't lose sight of the fact that it is still owned by the landowner. It is his. And so in verse 34, when he requires fruit from the vine dressers, we understand, of course, and the hearers understand that the vine dressers should do exactly that. They should give the landowner what he is entitled to. The owner sends servants. He's presumably not expecting uh, any trouble. He expects that these uh, vine dressers will say, no problem, sure, here's what you are entitled to. But instead, we're surprised because these vine dressers refuse. They refuse to give the owner what he's entitled to. In fact, they react with violence against his servant, beating them, killing them, and so on. The hearers, like David, are probably struck with the injustice of the situation. They understand that the owner is certainly within his rights to require this fruit. And how dare these people respond that way? How dare they refuse, let alone perpetrate violence upon the servants? But the owner in the parable is shockingly patient. After this response to his servants, he simply sends more servants, trying to persuade the people to give what they owe. All that happens is the same thing. They beat the servants, they kill the servants, they don't listen. And finally, the owner then sends his son. And there's something almost plaintive in his, his statement. They will respect my son. So whatever they've done to my servants, surely they will at least respect my son. They can't be that evil, can they? Well, they can. With what we call malice aforethought, complete intentionality, Oh, here's the son. You know, if we kill him, we get the vineyard. Complete intentionality to kill the son and throw him out. By now, the hearers must be fully enraged. How dare they do that? How dare these people kill the son? And Jesus asks, what do you think? What, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And the hearers give the right answer. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And in so doing, Jesus' hearers condemn themselves, just as David did when Nathan came to him. Because Jesus then hits them with the punchline in verse 30, 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And then they finally get it. In verse 45. Now the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking of them. Duh. We wonder how they missed it. I mean, the meaning is pretty obvious. The owner represents God. The vineyard is the land of Israel. The wicked vine dressers are, are the people of Israel, or at least the faithless ones. And God has been patient to them down through history calling them, sending servants to them, sending prophets to them, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, calling them to repent, calling them to give God what they owe Him. And all along, all they have done is continue to ignore God's servants, to disobey Him, to rebel, to beat His servants, to kill some of them. And through it all, God continued to be patient. Oh, how patient! As they mocked Him, spat in His face, killed His prophets... And now he is sending his son. 
He is sending his son Jesus. Surely they will respect God's son. But no, they won't even listen to God's own son. Jesus points out in verse 42, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting this from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. In Psalm 118, the psalmist speaks as the godly man surrounded by ungodly foes who are seeking to destroy him. But the godly one continues to trust in God and so gains victory over these foes. And then he says that line, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The psalmist is likening himself to a stone that is being rejected by these ungodly, but championed by God himself, selected by God himself. And by quoting this psalm, Jesus is saying that here too the ungodly are rejecting the very one that God is championing. The ungodly nation is rejecting Jesus, but God has made him the chief cornerstone of the new covenant, the new people of God. Then Jesus announces God's judgment. The vineyard will be taken away and given to another nation, one that will actually respond to God and give God what he is entitled to. And finally, we have Jesus' warning in verse 44, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will crush him. And here, Jesus is using imagery that is very common in the Old Testament. The stone that God sets that is a refuge for some, but a stumbling block for others. From Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 to 15, Isaiah 28, 16, particularly apropos here. Is there a difference between whoever falls on the stone will be broken and on whomever it falls, it will crush him? It's not entirely clear. Maybe there's not much difference. Some suggest that the, the first one is not final. There are people who stumble over Jesus, who have trouble accepting it. And opposing Jesus is always bad. It will always cause trouble. But eventually some of them might come around. We think of Saul of Tarsus who began his career trying to destroy the church and ended it as one of the greatest apostles and missionaries of God. The latter, those, though, those upon whom the stone falls, that's judgment day and these are on their way to final perdition. Maybe that's splitting too fine a hair. You should remember at this point a certain rabbinical saying that says, if a pot falls on a stone, woe to the pot. If the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. If you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. So verse 45, the Pharisees finally realize that Jesus has been speaking against them. And the reaction they give proves that he's right. They sought to lay hands on him and were stopped only because they feared the multitude. There's no repentance. There's no rethinking of their position. There's just anger. It's just an attempt to crush God's will by force. You think back to the Old Testament, King Saul 
when he rebelled against God and God deposed him from being king, he could have repented at that point, could have stayed in God's good books, not as king, but at least within God's people. Instead, he spent his career trying to destroy God's plan by force, ended up dying a miserable death. We see the same thing here. Let's take a look for a moment at Psalm 2 and see how very clearly it's teaching the same kind of idea. Verses 1 to 3, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You see the similarity. God is doing something. God is bringing in His Christ. That's what anointed means. God is bringing in His Christ and the people, the leaders, they're raging against it. They're trying to sidetrack it. They don't want to go with God's plan. Let's break God's cords. As if somehow God's will is binding us and we'll be free if we get rid of it. Which is the whole root and core of sin. But just as God has made Jesus the chief cornerstone regardless of what the ungodly want or think, we look at verses 4-6, to six, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That cornerstone has been laid and it doesn't matter who opposes it or how. God's plan will not be thwarted. They cannot frustrate his plan. Jesus is on the throne. He is the cornerstone, period. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The same warning of judgment to those who oppose God's plan as the stone that will crush them. So, <clears throat> the basic meaning of the parable is pretty straightforward. There's an oracle of judgment against unbelieving Israel. They've had their chance. They rejected the prophets and now they're rejecting the Christ Jesus. Now judgment will fall. I don't think it's stretching the point too far to say this can also be applied to people in general. We can see the vineyard as the entire world and the vine dressers as the people of the world. And the first thing to notice here is that we are living in God's world. It is not ours. Psalm 24 verse 1. Psalm 50 verse 12. We didn't make this world he did. Psalm 119, verse 90. Psalm 121, verse 2. Psalm 124, verse 8. And He upholds the world that we live in. He's the one who keeps it going, not us. Hebrews 1, 3. It's His world. And it's a good place. As all those things needed to make a vineyard function are provided by the owner of the vineyard. And the same thing, everything that's needed, everything that we need to give God what is owed has been provided to us in this good world. Romans 1, 18-21. Romans 10, 17-18. John 1, 9. Titus 2, 11. Isn't it strange... When we consider the situation of these vine dressers in the vineyard, we understand, we agree that the owner has a right to demand certain returns from the vine dressers. But somehow living in God's world, we don't make that same connection. 
Somehow we don't think we owe anything to God. Too often we complain that it's not reasonable that God should require us to have faith. How dare He judge those who don't believe in Jesus as if everyone has some kind of right to go to heaven. This is God's world. Heaven is God's throne. No one has a right to live in it. The homeowner has the right to set the admission requirements. Why do we see that so readily with the vineyard owner, but somehow we miss the point when it comes to God? Psalm 2 is not just about faithless Jews, it's about faithless everyone. The nations, the Gentiles. We don't have to look far to see our society rushing pell-mell in the same direction. Let's throw out God. Let's get rid of His standards. There are cords binding us. Let's throw out God and His standards, and then we'll be free. And God is holding them in derision every bit as much as the faithless Jews. So there's the parable. It's immediate application to the faithless Jews confronting Jesus about 2,000 years ago, and it's wider application to us. And, oh yes, there's verse 46. The last verse. The Pharisees and the leaders, they're so enraged, they want to take Jesus out now, but they can't. Verse 46, when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Looks almost like just an addendum to the story. Final wrap-up. But I consider it one of the most ironic lines in the entire Bible. It's a line that shows that these multitudes, the ones who are preventing the Pharisees from killing Jesus, these multitudes don't really get it any better than the Pharisees do. The multitudes took him for a prophet. What's so ironic about that line? Because this brings us to the second message of this parable, one which is of profound importance on several levels, but is almost always overlooked. Why? In the parable, the owner starts out sending servants. These servants aren't listened to. And then he sends his son, and they don't listen to him either. They kill him. Why doesn't the owner at that point try again with some more servants? Son didn't work. Let's send more servants. Because the son is better than the servants. The son is greater than the servants. You see, if your initial attempt doesn't work, you must make a better attempt. A greater attempt, not a lesser one. And if the greater doesn't work, it is absolutely pointless and fatuous to go back to the lesser. The son is greater than the servants. That's why after the wicked vine dressers rejected the servants, the owner sent the son. They'll respect my son. They've got to because that's the best the owner's got. He has nothing better to send if they reject the Son. There's nothing left for them after that but destruction. There's no point to further patience. If they won't listen to the Son, they won't listen to anyone. The Son is the final, the ultimate messenger, your last best chance. If you reject even that, then there is nowhere else to go and nothing left for you. And that point comes across clearly in the parable if you think about it. God has sent prophets before. And you've rejected them. You've killed them. You've ignored them. So now he's sending you the best he's got, his own son. 
He's your last chance because there is no one better to send. So make your peace with the Son while you can. As Psalm 2 puts it prophetically in verses 10 to 12, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. It's right there in the Old Testament. You want to be in God's good books, you had better honor the Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, makes what's essentially a similar point. Listen carefully. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Do you understand this? Jesus is God's best and final revelation. Yes, he's a prophet in one sense, but he is no mere prophet. Listen to the words of Peter on the road to Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The multitude's taken for a prophet. He's another one of those. Another one like Jeremiah. Another one like Isaiah. Not even close. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. He is not a prophet. He is the Son of the living God. Jesus is God, the Son. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He is fully man and yet fully God. God manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. He is Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7.14. The ultimate, final messenger of God is God Himself in the flesh. There can be nothing to follow this. There is nowhere else to go. Hear the words of the apostles in John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus, having come, we must realize this is God's final word. Take it or leave it. But if you leave it, He will not send you more prophets. He's not going to send you more servants. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and sent us God the Holy Spirit as the Parakletos, the Comforter, to be with us until He Himself, Jesus, will return. And there will be no one else. God will not go back to sending prophets if his son is rejected. There would be no point. Which means everyone else who comes after is a fake, a fraud, 
phony. Friday night we talked about Joel's win as the watchtower, which claims to be the prophet bringing God's true message back to the world. And we talked about how bogus their claim is. We talked about the false prophecies they've issued in the past, how they changed the Bible to make it fit what they wanted to say, which are all important points. But as we've seen, Jesus is God's final revelation. No other prophets are coming. And if nothing else, this blows out the Watchtower claim. They condemn themselves as false. That camel driver in Arabia, 600 years after Jesus, saying, oh, I'm bringing God's real message, I'm bringing God's final message. Nuh-uh. No, he's not. There are no prophets coming after Jesus. Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, oh, I'm the prophet that God sent in the end time to restore the true church. Uh-uh. Sun Myung Moon, Jesus didn't finish the job, I'm coming to finish it. No. The sun is the final revelation of God. Take it or leave it. Nobody else is coming. Nobody after him is true. That is the message for the whole world. There is nowhere else you can go. But if you're inclined to reject it, remember that part about the stone. Don't get stoned by Jesus. You want Jesus to be your rock of salvation, not the rock you can't crawl out from under. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.